Today, we turn our attention to the biblical city of Philadelphia. This city was formed by the Greek Empire about 150 years before uh, the days of Jesus. It was actually founded by Attalus II. And Attalus II, he named the city Philadelphia as an indication to show his great love and admiration for his older brother. Like the city that we have inside of the United States of America in Pennsylvania, uh, known as Philadelphia, this word means brotherly love. This city was important in its location. It was founded by the Greeks as a gateway to the east. It sits along what they called the King's Road, which was a major trading route, and it was established to spread the culture of Greece. It was, in essence, a missionary outpost for the Hellenization of that region. In fact, it was sometimes called Little Athens because it represented the ideal of Greek life in a faraway place on the way to the mysterious east. Eventually, Greece as an empire was overshadowed by Rome, and this city became an outpost of Roman culture as well. The city itself was very loyal to Rome, and if you were to walk down the cobblestone streets of the city of Philadelphia, there was a common phrase that you would hear. It was called, Caesar is Lord. Their love for the emperor was very well known, and that little phrase was used just as common as God bless America is used inside of the United States. However, in the midst of this great prestige and power, there lurked an ever-present danger. This was a rich region agriculturally. During the first century AD, when this letter was written, uh, this place called Philadelphia was actually well known for its vineyards, and it rivaled even the vineyards of Rome, and it's still actually known for that today. But that's what kind of created the issue, because inside of these fields where the grapes would grow, it would grow very rapidly because of the volcanic mineral soil, but it also made them susceptible to earthquakes. The ever-present danger of earthquakes was from shifting tectonic plates and movement in the earth's crust. In fact, in 17 AD, when Jesus would have been just a teenager, in 17 AD, there was an earthquake that hit this region so hard and it was so devastating that the aftershocks were felt for another 20 years. It was so intense that the aftershocks were uh, destroying everything in its past. And, and the devastation that this brought was so significant that the Roman emperor at the time actually forgave them, waived them paying taxes for a period of time in order to stimulate their economy. Rome flooded Philadelphia with all sorts of resources so that they could rebuild. But because of these aftershocks, this was kind of the routine of life. They would rebuild and progress would be made and then it would be brought to ruin again because of the earthquakes. This created my major financial strain and financial strain leads to mass hysteria. And of course, mass hysteria leads to mass panic. Now, I want you to imagine with me, you might have to use your imagination a little bit. The Philadelphians were living in a booming economy. Everything was going great. They had unlimited, uh, they had like, you know, unlimited access to resources and just everything was at their fingertips. And then all of a sudden, there was a catastrophe that struck them and they were left to ruin and they were waiting on stimulus checks from the Roman government. Sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Uncertainty, instability, and worry were the words used to describe this beautiful place known as Philadelphia. And in the midst of all of this and all of these happenstances, there was a letter about to be given to a little church, a little church that was 
written by Jesus Christ himself, dictated by John the Apostle, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And how this letter kicks off in a unique description of describing who Jesus was. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to Revelation chapter three. The letter's gonna start around verse seven. If you have your mobile device, just punch in Revelation 3, seven and uh, read aloud with me as I read. You can just do that right there in your home. I won't even hear you. In the seventh verse of Revelation chapter three, it says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One describing Jesus, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So Jesus is presenting himself in the first sentence of this letter as a very powerful resource to them. He's letting them know with three very strong descriptive phrases that he is the Holy One, that he is the true one, and that he is the son of David. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but Jesus describes himself differently at the beginning of each letter in every single letter. Now, we're on the sixth letter now. We've done five so far. This is the sixth church that we're going to be looking at today, and he gives a very unique description in every single one of them. Now, I don't know about you, when I'm introducing myself, I typically don't start with a description of myself. Like if I'm calling you on the phone for the first time, I don't go, hey, I'm the one that used to have hair. I'm probably just gonna say, hello, my name is Blake Stanley. Or if I'm meeting you in person, I'm not gonna describe myself. I'm gonna extend a hand. Oh, wait a minute, we can't do that anymore. I'm gonna extend an elbow to you and I'm gonna introduce myself as Blake Stanley, but Jesus doesn't do this. He describes himself and he's doing this very intentionally and he's doing it with great purpose. The reason why is because the way that he describes himself directly maps and relates to the subject matter of the letter. Jesus is telling this church that the words that you are about to read are from the Holy One, and it's significant. The true one, and that's a significant term, and the one who holds the key of David. The Holy and true one are pretty straightforward descriptions. What does this one who has the key of David mean? What does this phrase mean? Simply put, it's showcasing that Jesus is in charge. Now, this is an Old Testament reference that we don't have the time to get into into the book of Isaiah. And so I'll just tell you that, that when Jesus says, I'm the one who has the key of David, he's in essence letting everybody know that is listening to him, hey, I am in charge. I have great omnipotence. I have great power. Why is he telling them this? Let's continue to read. In verse eight of Revelation chapter three, Jesus tells them this, I know your works. Very similar to the other churches. I know your works. Does this statement not make anyone else feel nervous? I mean, it makes me a little nervous. I'm gonna be honest with you. I mean, think about it. If Jesus was to roll into your living room right now, riding a white horse, fire shooting out of his eyes, and said, I'm the holy one, the true one, the one that holds the key of David, and I know your works. I've been watching you. It would make you a little bit nervous. It's almost as if Jesus is about to unload the clip of judgment like he has done with some of the other churches. I know your works. He continues, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have, but, and circle these words, little power. That's significant. He describes himself as the big grandiose, true, holy one, the one who has all the authority in the land. And then he describes them as an entity 
an organism that has but little power. So what does that mean? Little power probably meant a variety of things, but it most likely spoke to their size. They as Christians in the first century were overwhelmingly outnumbered. They would have been certainly the minority. They didn't live in the Bible belt. They didn't live on the belt buckle of the Bible belt. They were outnumbered. And then it also probably spoke to their access to resources. Because of the natural disaster, they would not have had many resources. And so they are just this little church, and he's talking to this little church, and this is what he says following. He says, you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Both kept and denied are important words because they're in the aorist tense, which refers to specific times in the past that still stands true. The clear implication is that there was a specific time in the past when this church would have faced, according to how this sentence is structured, that they would have faced severe trials and attacks. Now, we don't know what they are. He doesn't go into great detail, but Jesus knew and the church in Philadelphia would have known as well that they were facing severe trials and attacks, yet they stood strong and emerged victorious. Everything that he says in verse eight and the verses to follow, it speaks to his love and concern for them. In fact, this is one of two churches that Jesus doesn't give any criticism to whatsoever. The other church would have been Smyrna. He just lets them know, man, I'm so proud of you because in the midst of great pressure, in the midst of great persecution, the trials and all of the things that you've had to go through is that you did not deny my name and you kept true to my word. You are an enduring church. And because of this, Jesus says, I'm gonna sit before you an open door. I'm going to, because of your posture and attitude towards me, I'm gonna set before you an open door. Now, this open door concept had been expressed before. Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse nine, he said, a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me. Later, Paul would remark, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened a door for me. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. And to the Colossians, he asked that they pray for us that God may open a door for us to preach the mystery of Christ, Colossians 4, 3. So the open door that Jesus is probably alluding to is that he is about to give them this immense opportunity for ministry and the ability to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to this little Greece-established culture. Jesus is commissioning them. He's saying, I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime to be able to spread the cultural characteristics of a new kingdom that I've established here on this earth. So the open door is the preaching of the gospel. And this is so relatable to us. I'm gonna help you connect the dots. The Church of Philadelphia, they were in crisis mode. Like they were in the midst of just just persecution, getting pummeled from their left and their right. Every time they would build something, it would be destroyed again. And their response gave them an open door. Based upon their response, it says that Jesus gave them an open door. And I don't know if you've uh, watched the news here lately or not, but we're kind of in the middle of a crisis as well. We're in the middle of this pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID-19 virus, And I believe that our response is going to dictate whether or not that Jesus is going to open a door wide for us to be able to share his gospel. You see, there's two mindsets that kind of roll out of a moment of crisis. And I think they're crucial 
for the church of Philadelphia, but I think that are crucial also for us today. There's the opportunity mindset or there's the obstruction mindset. Now, the obstruction mindset are those individuals that whine and grieve. And listen, I just wanna give you permission to grieve. It's okay to grieve, but at some point, you're going to have to stop grieving and begin to brail through all of this and find the opportunities. God doesn't want you to just have this obstruction mindset to where you just go, oh, I can't believe that this happened. And why God and why God and why God? That's a great prayer sometimes, but sometimes we have to transition from why God to what are you trying to show me right now? That's what an opportunity mindset does. An opportunity mindset recognizes that the way we used to do things isn't possible. And you know what it does? It adapts. An opportunity mindset gets weirdly excited about the new and fresh ways to do ministry, to lead, to parent, to work, and to neighbor. We're in the middle of a crisis, and I don't want us to just have this obstruction mindset because I believe that if we have an obstruction mindset, that it's not going to afford us the ability to walk through the open door that Jesus Christ is obviously giving us to proclaim his gospel. Have you ever viewed something in the present as an obstacle only to realize that it was actually an opportunity? I'm gonna go out on the limb here and I'm gonna say this COVID-19 virus may turn out to be the biggest open door for the church to share the gospel. I can only speak for Three Circle Church, but as a church, we're connecting with more people than we ever had before right through that camera lens. Like we reached more people through Easter with the gospel of Jesus Christ Someone said that the gospel of Jesus Christ was probably preached to more people in human history than ever before this past Easter Sunday, talking about the resurrection of Christ. We're connecting with people in inside of online groups, like we're coming riding to their living rooms with computer screens, and we're able to have conversations, not just with people locally in our church, but we got people in our community. And then we had a staff member tell us just the other day that they had a 45-minute conversation with someone who signed up for an online small group in Pennsylvania. So here we are in the midst of this pandemic, and the door is swung wide open for us to be able to connect with people at a heightened level. We are handing out more Bibles combined with groceries and other met needs like never before. Our neighbors, do you have strangers like walking around your neighborhood like I do right now? Those are your neighbors. Like they are leaving their privacy fence backyards, maybe for the first time ever. And they're connecting now at a distance, six foot rule. They're connecting with you at a distance. They're craving community. And there's a lot of pent-up energy that's going to be unleashed once we kind of get back to a position where we're able to gather as a church. But in the midst of this, we should not view it as an obstruction, but we should look for the opportunities. Yes, the physical church doors have been shut. Yes, the church is scattered throughout Baldwin County, but the door that's now open to share the gospel has been swung wide open. And I believe that COVID-19 is the hinges that's swinging that door, is swinging that door wide open. Yeah, oftentimes the obstruction is a setup for an opportunity in disguise. And we certainly have a lot of opportunities before us. Winston Churchill said this, he said, don't waste a crisis. I want you to repeat after me. I want you to look at this as an opportunity. So I want you to say these words, this is an opportunity and we certainly shouldn't waste it. Don't waste this opportunity. 
The little church in Philadelphia was encouraged by Christ because in the middle of crisis, persecution, and financial calamity, they kept the word and had not denied his name. Jesus continues his encouragement in verse nine. It says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, strong words, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is the second time that Jesus brought up the phrase synagogue of Satan. The first time is when he was addressing the church in Smyrna. So like the church in Smyrna, there was a synagogue that was in close proximity and they were underneath merciless siege. The church of Philadelphia was underneath merciless siege from the Jewish community. Jesus again spoke of these attacks inside of this letter. He's like, I see the attacks and I wanna tell you what they are. They act like good little Jewish boys and girls, but that's not what they are. They are the synagogue of Satan. They're claiming to be Jews, but they are lying and they were impugning the reputation of those Christians inside of those communities. In addition, back in those days, inside of the Jewish synagogue, uh, there would have been exemption logs kept. And if your name was in an exemption log, you didn't have to declare Caesar as Lord. And, and at first, Christianity was considered an offshoot of Judaism. And so a lot of Christians were inside of those exemption logs. But the Jewish community began to realize that they're proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, and they actually were completely different than Judaism. And so they would, would, would start removing their names off of the exemption log and go to the Roman government and say, hey, those guys are not declaring Caesar as Lord, and they're not a part of our log books. This infuriated Jesus. None of this made him happy. And he prophetically said that there was a day that was going to come where this synagogue of Satan who looked and acted like good little boys and girls would one day bow down before their feet. They will learn of my love for you. He continues to be prophetic in verse 10 of Revelation 3. In verse 10, it says, because you have kept my word, now I want you to pay close attention to this verse, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial, I see kind of a scary phrase, that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. For those of you looking for some good old fashioned into the world as we know it, theology, both verse nine and verse 10 and the verses that follow have that all baked into it. Or should I say that these are the verses that a lot of end time teachers will use as a piece inside of their puzzle to explain how the world is going to come to an end. It's a part of a big robust word called eschatology. It does seem to be obvious, we're not sure, but it does seem to be obvious that the things that we're reading now have not happened yet in history. The synagogue of Satan, it could have happened in some symbolic way, but we're not sure. The synagogue of Satan has yet to bow to the church of Philadelphia, so that could potentially be a future promise. Most would say that the hour of trial hasn't hit the whole world yet. That's potentially a prophetic and futuristic truth claim. So this means that we are probably awaiting its fulfillment. It hasn't happened yet, so we are awaiting its fulfillment. And a lot of end time Bible prophecy teachers, they love to speculate, especially about these verses of scripture. And they love to just kind of dig in and kind of go through and sift through and talk about the when and the why and the how and the where. And they love to kind of predict who the Antichrist is gonna be and all of that good stuff. Many theologians have, have, in, have different interpretations on these couple of verses. 
Some say that the earth is going to experience a great tribulation, the hour of trial, that's what that meant. The hour of trial equals, in some people's minds, the great tribulation, and before it starts, the church, now I'm gonna use an old school word, the church is about to be raptured out, and then a great tribulation is going to start. That theology is about 150 years old, and it teaches that God is going to come take the church in heaven, and the earth and everyone in it will experience a tribulation period. And there's people who are pre-trib, we're going to get taken out. There's people that are mid-trib, we're going to get taken out in the middle of it. And there's people that are post-trib. All of this stuff is great to converse about. And like it's all baked into these verses of Scripture that we're leading, which is pretty cool. But I think sometimes that we can just get so caught up in, so caught up in having conversations about what these verses mean that we miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make, is that God is in control. It's a reminder that God is in control of history and all of its events, even this one. God is using this and everything before it and after it to steer all of history towards its glorious conclusion. Next, the Lord promise of his return. In verse 11, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, he says, hey, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, hold on to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The church that fulfills its calling will live with a constant imminence of Jesus's return. The crown promise to these faithful saints is not their salvation. This does not imply that someone can take away your salvation. I'm gonna take your crown. He's not talking about salvation here. So what does the crown mean? The crown is actually a future reward that we would get on the other side of heaven. You see, we're saved by faith, but we will one day be rewarded according to our works. And according to this verse of scripture, this church in Philadelphia is going to receive a crown. Then the Lord promises, he says, I'm coming soon. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the soon word because in America, we hear soon and we think immediate. It's gonna happen like within the next few seconds because we have microwaves, right? Because things come so quickly, we have fast food. So we hear soon and we think immediate, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. In fact, if you kind of break down the language, it just means that he's certainly coming soon. This is an expression of certainty, not timing. It's also the attitude that we're supposed to live with. We're supposed to live with the attitude that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. That's a game changer, right? Peter and Paul and all of the first apostles and the first Christians, you know, you'll see it littered throughout the letters that Paul wrote to the churches that Jesus was gonna return soon. And he was talking about its certainty, not necessarily its timing, but that's the way that he lived his life. His attitude was that Jesus could come back at any time. And how would that change the way that we speak to one another, the way that we interact with one another if we lived as if Jesus could return soon? What if Jesus was to come back in the middle of that sentence that you're about to give to your teenager, in the middle of that conversation that you're about to have with your spouse? If we lived our lives as if Jesus could literally come back in the middle of our sentences, in the middle of our lifestyles, would it change the game for us? That's what he's saying. Coming back soon, live with that attitude and live with the awareness that it is going to be certain. When he returns, there will be a stability and security in him. To the conqueror, he promised, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it. Talking to the church of Philadelphia, this is some good preaching right here. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. In that city of massive earthquakes, what Jesus is saying is like, hey, listen, I know that you're in an unstable environment, but there's gonna come a day where heaven's gonna collide with earth and I'm gonna make all things new. I'm gonna restore all things to its proper place because I'm God. I'm the one that has the key of David. I am in charge. And he promised to make them a pillar. They were used to watching pillars get crushed by earthquakes. So this would have been a vivid picture in their hearts of, of victory that there was gonna come a day where they were gonna be made pillars in the temple of their God. So what does it mean to have God write his name on you? He says that inside of this verse as well. What does it mean? Well, the Jewish understanding of it would have been three, threefold. The first would have been, it would have been written right there on their foreheads for everybody to see. God would have signed them, tattooed them. That's my kid. Right there on their foreheads, letting everyone know that he or she is mine. The second understanding would be that we hold citizenship in his kingdom. God is saying that it's very important to me to let you know that you're going to have permanent residence with me for all of eternity. I wanna let you know that. And then thirdly, is that we would be fully related to the king. He's gonna give them a new name, and man, that is such good news. It was such good news when they sat there as a community inside of the first century church in Philadelphia underneath great persecution and read this promise, but it's also great news for us today. It's great news for us because one day when God is finished with the work that he's doing in you, he's going to sign his name so that the whole world knows that you belong to him. He's gonna let everyone know that you're his child and your citizenship is in heaven. In verse 13, concluding, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy One, the True One, the One who holds the key to David, he sees your faithfulness, he sees your endurance, and he wants to write his name on you to tell the watching world that you belong to him. I wanna pray with you. Right there in your living room, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to just take a moment to sort of drink in the words that you just heard. And as you're doing that, I wanna pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to teach your word. And today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we gather in the middle of this week, I pray that you would just give everybody that's listening an opportunity mindset, that they would know by the power that lives on the inside of them, the power of the Holy Spirit, that they don't have to be discouraged, be in panic, or be in fear mode because they've got a king 
who is their father that loves them dearly, who wants to write his name on them and claim to the whole world that he or she is mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.